I'm Christopher Calloway. Welcome to this week's Creator Talks. Last week, I spoke with two comic book professionals, writer Ron Mars and artist Daryl Banks, about their Kickstarter, Harkins Raiders. If you haven't heard it yet, you might want to very soon. Their Kickstarter ends this Friday, December 21st. In this installment of Creator Talks, I speak with writer Nandor Fox Schaefer, who is launching his second Kickstarter, Lifeline. If it reaches its funding goal, it will be a 96-page graphic novel. The campaign ends on the first day of the new year, 2019. This Kickstarter, Lifeline, is a celebration of indie creator collaboration. Seven artists from around the world will each provide a chapter of art for Nandor's story of Lewis Wakefield's life. Each chapter takes place during a different decade of Lewis's life, as told through the eyes of his father, wife, best friend, daughter, a stranger, and grandson. In the end, Lewis will ask himself one of life's most important questions, was my life worth living? In my conversation with the book's author, I find out why Nandor decided to postpone his college education to work on his writing comics. What are his plans for the future? How did Star Wars and Doctor Who inspire Nandor to become a comic book writer? We talk about Nandor's favorite two iconic science fiction series, plus Nandor makes a case for why he prefers George Lucas' prequels to the original trilogy and current Star Wars series. This episode's brought to you by The Comic Book Shop in Wilmington, Delaware, where comics are for everyone. Just be nice. So join me now with author Nandor Fox Schaefer, author of Lifeline and Seasons, here now on Creator Talks. Welcome to Creator Talks. Hi, Chris. How's it going? Going great. You're the first person I've met named Nandor. Slight correction. Uh, it is Nandor. Nandor. Okay. Everyone does that. Everyone I've ever met uh, pronounces Nandor, which is just, I think, the regular way to go with it. <laughs> well, now I know how to pronounce it. So when I do your introduction on the show, I'll have it right. <laughs> All right. Yeah. <laughs> now you're located in Jefferson City, Missouri. That's correct, yeah. That must be tough for someone writing comics. The reason why I say that is people trying to break into comics, they tend to live around big metropolitan cities, or at least that's a good place to be in terms of getting in front of publishers and a lot of people at cons, the big cons, New York Comic Con, San Diego. I know you've been to some cons. Have you been to the bigger cons? I have not. That's actually uh, on my bucket list. And really, you know, just for next step in my like career and trying to get my books in front of people is to go to the, the bigger cons. I'm, I'm really thinking about going to New York or San Diego next year because I think that would be looking at it now. I could like save up for it and kind of like plan for it a lot better than before. It's a smart thing to hold off for a bit because it does take more money than you realize (laughs) with the the flight, the hotel, the food. It's a lot of fun. It's also a lot of work. But by that time, and you already have, we're going to talk about your Kickstarter now running. We're going to talk about your last Kickstarter. And when you have more things on the table, probably is better because with a big con, you know, if you have one book, man, it's really hard to get people's attention. You have some things to put out there. Now you get a little more attention. People walking by going, oh, what's this? So it's a good idea, you know, no no hurry on that. And you've got the rest of your life. <laughs> <laughs> it's true. And just to kind of expand on that point, Jai Nitz, he's a comics writer. He's written for both Marvel and DC, and he's done some independent stuff. I met him, met him once before, but then I went back to Planet Comic Con in Kansas City, Missouri uh, this past year. And I was talking to him about, you know, as a writer, it's really different being a comics writer than being a comics artist because I think it's a lot harder to get your work out there or get noticed compared to artists just because artists, you know, it's the visual. If someone can see one page and be like, that's awesome or that's really good. But with the story, you have to really take it in and absorb it and kind of see see what else the writer can do and, and how versatile he is with his writing. But anyways, I was having a conversation with Jai Nitz and I wasn't doing really well at this con selling my, my first book. And he was like, I would advise you not to go to a big convention until you at least have like five or six books. And I was like, oh, <laughs> you know, <laughs> it kind of took me off guard. Like, am I wasting my, my time and money here? I mean, I wasn't because I definitely got to meet some good people and, and sold a few you know, copies of my book. But I was really discouraged because I thought it would do a lot better. And he was telling me that 
you really need to have a, a breadth of content for people to look at so you stand out and not just have this one thing. That's something that I'm taking to heart and considering. And I don't think I want to go to New York or San Diego until I at least have like maybe three books. And even then, I'm still a bit... <laughs> uh, apprehensive to the idea. But, you know, I've never been to New York or, or San Diego anyway, so it could be this nice travel experience as well. I haven't either. I haven't because of the expense and usually scheduling. It's always never worked out for me schedule-wise. Now, some of the smaller ones that I've talked about ad nauseum on the podcast because I've been to them. Baltimore in Baltimore, Maryland, and the Heroes Con in Charlotte, North Carolina, those are very creator-centric cons oh, cool. uh, and they're decent size and they're over three days but you're not swallowed up in this huge artist alley it's very <laughs> easy to get access to people to chat with them and if anything even from a networking standpoint for yourself just to meet like you have other artists and writers mm-hmm. it's a wonderful opportunity the whole table thing is a question of, well, do I have enough to get some attention from people? And can I cover the cost of my table at least? You know? Yeah, yeah <laughs> definitely. <laughs> now, you've lived in Jefferson City all your life? Definitely the majority. I, I was born here and I lived in a city next to Jeff for a little bit. And then I lived in Texas for a little bit, for like a year or so with my family. And then uh, we came back to Jeff about when I was like six or seven, kind of made a, a full circle back to home base, you could say. Now, what I've seen of it online, I haven't been out there. It looks charming. Tell me about it. What's the best part about living in Jefferson City? <laughs> well, uh, I'm probably not the, <laughs> the best <laughs> because it is a capital city. So that's cool. I mean, it's the capital city of Missouri, but that's mainly what we have is the capital. And that's the most interesting thing about Jeff, I'd say, if I were to show people around. And there's some nostalgic love I have for the city, you know, just different memories and and things. I grew up here in certain spots or places. And even though it's a small city, you know, it's changed a lot. And uh, even in the time, you know, that I've lived here, it's like a lot has changed, like in the mall or just around downtown. And the good thing about living here is you get all seasons. You get a little bit of everything and you can experience a lot of what nature kind of has to offer in that respect. And then I think the best thing about Jeff, it's a great place to, you know, have a family or raise a family you know it's really low-key and has a good i think foundation for a lot of people a lot of kids you know trying to raise up people not in a big crowded city or where a lot's going on i'm learning as i'm getting out in the world and growing up everyone kind of knows everyone or is maybe sort of related to someone or you know oh i know that person from there and, and then i'm like oh wow this is a really small town <laughs> we have a really good view of the like missouri river so that's cool and i love some of the I guess, history or just some of the architecture here. It's not very, you know, what I grand or anything, but I, I, I can appreciate it. And I'm a dreamer. Like, I see things and I and I imagine things and I go, oh, you know, this could be like this or this reminds me of this. Or I just, I kind of like taking everything in and try to make the most of it. But Jefferson City is not very exciting. And it's funny because we have a sister uh, city where Missouri University is. It's like a, a college town. And it's funny. It's only like... 30 minutes away, but you can tell uh, there's a, a total societal, cultural change when you go there. You're like, this is like hip. People are actually doing something here. And, and Jeff, it's kind of like, yeah, <laughs> you know, like a, a sigh, you know, it's like, okay. What I love about it is I'm able to really focus and not kind of get caught up in a lot of stuff. I like kind of the isolation and so to speak and, and I get to get a lot of, you know, me time and get my stuff done and enjoy, you know, being with my family. And so um that's the best part about it. You recently graduated from college? I went to college for a year. I decided not to continue because I think I want to go back, but I was um on the heels of getting my first book seasons kind of out there online and prepared and was planning on still going. But as I was uh, working more and getting paid more, like I remember calling my college up and I was like, Hey, like I'm going to have to pay a lot more like for this next semester. Like what's, you know, out of pocket, like what's that all about? And they basically told me like, it would have been better if you didn't get a job or, you know, you weren't making as much money. And I was like, Oh, well, (laughs) that's very helpful. Seasons was kind of kicking off and I kind of wanted to postpone college for now. It's kind of gotten away from me as I've been working on more comics and trying to get around and, and do things. So I, I, I do plan on going back, but it was kind of a, 
a sacrifice I had to make because I wanted to be, you know, a writer. I want to be a, a really good writer. And I didn't see college fulfilling that purpose for me. It's kind of ironic because one of the last classes I took, I was in an English class and my English teacher, she was so such an encouragement to me. Like I would give a paper and she'd be like, you are a writer, Nandor, like my first draft. And she would be like, this is almost perfect. Like, this is like really good. And it just really encouraged me. It's kind of, it kind of encouraged me not to go back to college. <laughs> oh, wow. Like, I'm actually okay at this. I do pretty good. But at the same time, I know there's still a lot I need to learn. I just had this desire to kind of do it on my own and kind of see how far I could go. And I figured since I was still young, could take these few years and really go head on with my dream and see where, where I could go and how far it would take me. It is worth getting a college degree. I know it's super expensive, though. I mean, I'm wondering how the kid's going to go at some point and where. But you're like, what, 21 now? Yeah, I'm 21 now. Thinking back then, I was like, oh, I'm 21. I'm, you know, I'm already so much older. But in retrospect now, I'm like, if I were going to college at 24... So what? I mean, that's not a big deal. And also, you bring something to the class when you've been out working and writing. Now you have practical experience. You have something that the other students don't have yet. So you have plenty of time. And it's something I would recommend doing because I wish I had got my master's now just so I had a master's degree because it seemed to give <laughs> you an edge. On I've had the advice, oh, yeah, get a master's degree in anything just to show you can get one. But, you know, as long as you're working and it's part of your plan, before you get tied down, that's the killer. Once you get tied down with family and kids, it becomes really hard because then how do you make the time in the day and also the money to pay for it? But really, you've got plenty of time to go back sometime in your 20s. Even people in their 30s go back. So it, it doesn't matter. That's something I saw a lot in the college I was going to. There was actually a good range of, you know, ages different people like I you know I saw some people in there like you said like 30s or 40s and they're like yeah I'm coming back to college and I was like wow like you can do that and you know it's good to go back when you can afford to go back to you don't want to get yourself there's no reason to get yourself into debt definitely not the way to start out your life is in deep debt I know it bothered me you know like going to college I was like I don't want to get out of here and then have all this debt and then be like well you know what do I do now I was going for creative writing and I was like I don't know how far this would take me, you know, because I wanted to write comics. And I was like, maybe I should just make comics. Maybe that's the degree. Maybe that's the, the business card. But I've yet to see the fruition of that. Since you're going to be a writer now, and that's your focus, who has been your biggest supporter in your decision to go that route for Go College and begin writing right now? My parents, you're kind of waiting for that moment where you say, I don't know if I'm going to go back to college. And you're waiting for them to be like, what are you doing? You better go, you know. I was kind of, you know, waiting for that. But um, as I was showing them how far I was getting with seasons and just the people I was coming in contact with, and I think they started to trust me and they trusted my, like, decision to go and pursue this besides going to college because um, I I'm very passionate about it. I spend a lot of time in my room writing and this is something you know, I read all the time and I think they kind of trusted me and they were like, well, you know, I, you have a level head. You're not like kind of going crazy and, and not being responsible about it. You're actually doing something. They've been pretty good about that. And I have an older brother and he's a really good encouragement. He's the first one to like read any of my scripts or drafts or anything, you know, he, and he gives me a good you know, criticism or uh, like when he read the first issue of Seasons, he was so blown away by it that he was like, dude, you just need to do this. Like, this is amazing. And I was like, sweet that's awesome and i think my family more than more than anything but uh, you know when i think about it as i've gotten older and, and i'm staying on this path i always have to remind myself is what i'm doing what i really want to do and also like two voices in my head going you know you shouldn't shouldn't be doing this you should go back to college or you should you know get a degree and another voice in my head's rooting me on really strongly because i'm really confident in my writing and what i can do I want to share that with the world. That's it, something that bothered me when I was going to college because I didn't have a lot of time to write as much. And <laughs> I was really bothered by that. I couldn't hold it back any longer. I was like, I have to get this out of my system. I have to share this with the world. And I had to do anything to get it out there is what I did. And a part of me, I think, is still in that phase. So I wonder if that'll, if I'll burn out, you know, of that, or if it's just going to keep on churning. And I really hope it does, because 
I just have a love for storytelling that is kind of insatiable. <laughs> well, it's important to do what you like because I probably spent 30 years working to get <laughs> money and an income, but I, I did not enjoy it until, well, more recently, like in the past five years or so, when I got into an area of marketing, I was like, oh man, this is fun. Where I was just never really having a whole lot of fun. <laughs> you know, I mean, it was, it was okay. There were good moments, but it wasn't something. I was like, oh, this is what I like to do. This is what I was made for, you know? And so if you think you found it, you got to follow that. Do you have any naysayers about your chosen path? And if so, how do you respond to them? I don't think I have any naysayers in the sense of them being very verbal about it or upfront with me about it. But I can tell sometimes when I tell some of my relatives or coworkers or friends or, or people at church or something, they give me this look sometimes kind of like, why aren't you going back to college? <laughs> you know, and part of me is like, I hear your concern. I, I their concern. I think that's the motivation for it. But at the same time, I just want to be like, I'm doing what I love. Like, stop bothering me about it. <laughs> um, <laughs> It's a constant battle in the sense that I'm always trying to prove myself. Like, I want to prove to those people that I can succeed at this. And it's my dream, you know, it's my passion. And uh, I want to do what I love. And going into all this and starting this journey, I always think about what I'm going to be like when I'm older. Like, you know, what are the things I want to do that I don't want to regret? This was one of them. Even if I fail, even if I can't break in or I don't go that far with it, I'll at least have a couple of books, a couple of comics. And when I have kids, I can be like, hey, I made these and I'm really proud of them. And it was a part of my life that I really enjoyed. And you can enjoy these stories. That's the most important thing is I wanted to not regret not going down this path. I knew I would. I knew I would be like, ah, like you were younger back then. Why, why didn't you just like try it for a little bit? Exactly. You don't want to look back and say, I wish... I had tried that. Right. The missus did the same thing. She went to physical therapy school for a while. And it's really difficult if you don't come in as a like pre-med or a nursing student and know all that anatomy in great detail. I mean, what she had to know, I couldn't handle it. It was just <laughs> way too much detail about muscle origins, insertions, and nerves. and It's a lot. So if you don't have that base, it's a lot of work. But she says, I don't regret it because at least I tried. As a writer... What's been the biggest challenge for you? Is it scheduling time to write? Is it promoting yourself with everybody else out there promoting their book? What's been the biggest challenge for you so far? I'd say the biggest challenge is definitely getting it in front of the eyes of either, you know, top industry heads or different publishers trying to stand out in the crowd. Marketing and trying to find my fan base and get it out there and really not only find the fan base, but try to keep them, you know, hold them is definitely difficult because a part of it is really difficult because I'm kind of fighting against myself because I'm not naturally inclined to share my writing because I just want to do it and then hope people enjoy it. So it's hard for me to be like, look at this, look at this. A part of me just wants to go, if you want to look at it, sure. <laughs> but I have to put that part of myself aside and be like, okay, you have to show your excitement and passion and get it out there. Because when I'm writing and I'm doing it, I'm so excited. I'm on fire. And so when it's done, trying to get other people excited about it is harder for me because it's like, I think it's really exciting, but I can't make you think it's exciting. I hope you think it's exciting and I hope you like it. But sometimes you have to really sell it. And that's the hardest part is trying to sell your book and sell your work and why you should be noticed and looked at compared to other people. Exactly. And I just like to take a moment to address the audience. If you're thinking of backing a Kickstarter and hopefully after hearing this interview, you will back Lifeline. I urge you to watch the video that Nandor put on the page because not only does it give you insight about the book, but also the creator, as I try to do on this show, Creator Talks. So that is a chance to see if there's a connection between you and the creator, something that they do, something that they like in their work, outside of going to cons and social media. For example, I watched your video. I look carefully and I see that you're a Star Wars and Doctor Who fan because there's posters in the background. <laughs> All right. So connection. All right, right there. So Star Wars, which movie of the series was your favorite and which one do you think is unjustly maligned? 
and why? This could totally turn into a big, a big conversation. Have at it. <laughs> and that's because this might shock you. I don't know how many conversations you've had like this, but I am an avid prequel lover. I love the prequels. Wow, I have not had that conversation before. <laughs> okay, do tell. My favorite film of the Star Wars franchise is actually uh, Episode Three: Revenge of the Sith. That's because I just thought it bridged the prequel trilogy and the original so well, but also the tragedy that Anakin went through, how that story just played out and how tragic it really is. And when you really sit down and you think about like the fallen hero, I love stories like that. And I believe I was eight or nine when I saw it. You know, I was crying at like nine years old in the theater. I was like, no. And even though I knew what, you know, what was going to happen, just seeing it before me and witnessing it and being in that experience, I was so devastated. And I love that film so much just because I love the Jedi. I love the Republic era, the prequel era so much and the amount of world building that went into the prequels and it opened up the Star Wars universe in a way that the original trilogy, I don't, you know, couldn't back then because of the time frame, you know, and, and the effects they could do and how, how far they could go with it. That's something I really appreciate about the prequels is because they add so much mythos and so much epic flair to the Star Wars universe. And, and I just, the first time a Sith is mentioned is, you know, in episode one. And it's like, now we talk about Sith all the time. You get to learn about, you know, Django and Boba, you know, and I know there, see, there are a lot of controversial things. You know, people are like, I don't like how, you know, you get to learn about that, or we didn't really need to see the fall of Anakin. And, and I just want to tell those people sometimes, like, you're crazy. I love that. I want to see that. And I grew up on that. And, Maybe that's where original fans and prequel fans differ in the fact that we grew up, you know, with a different Star Wars. But I don't even like saying that because uh, I used to watch the original trilogy all the time as a kid and the same amount of, you know, that I would watch the prequel trilogy. So to me, it always felt like one film or one story. I never divided it. Like I never thought oh, this is prequel trilogy. You know, I never really thought about it that way until I got older and I, you know, got on the internet and I was like, people hate these movies? Like, what? That's impossible. Like, I love these so much. And the one that I think is, you know, maligned uh, is definitely episode, I don't know, like episode one and two, like people really hate on those. And two more than, than one. You know, I think it gets a lot of hate because of, you know, the acting or the romance story between Anakin and Padme. And I have had hours-long conversations on forums or on on certain websites that try to defend the prequel trilogy like so much that it's exhausted my mental capacity it's been crazy and there's actually a really great documentary that i'd recommend anyone to watch on youtube called the prequel strike back um independent filmmakers go into like how much care and time and what the prequel trilogy did that the original trilogy hadn't and like kind of looking back and going why are these movies you know hated so much or disliked you know so much i don't know but i don't know i see a lot of people that vehemently you know hate the prequel trilogy i'm just not one of those people i i I dare to say it you know but i enjoy the prequels more than the originals that's just me i don't know like it's probably blasphemy for a lot of people to hear that and i get it i mean i totally do but you know in my mind's like all the star wars movies are like tens it's just maybe one's a, you know, 10.1 or 10.2 or something. You know, it's like they're all almost perfect to me. I just adore them so much. Well, you did see them in the theater, whereas probably the original three or four, five and six, you didn't. You couldn't. So you've always seen them on a smaller screen. So when you're younger like that and that's the first thing you see, chances are you're probably going to like it better anyway. And I will say that the original three when they did the special editions and I saw when they first came out and then I saw the special editions over time, the special editions, except for, I will say empire strikes back, the layered on effects don't look good. They look, (laughs) you know, they look out of date and clunky compared to later. (laughs) I prefer to see episode four in the original version i think each generation like even the ones that are coming out now some people don't like them as much but i think it's for a new generation 
And this is their Star Wars. And you know what? The old ones aren't going away. They're always going to be there. That's just part of change. And there's something for everybody to love, really, <laughs> when you get down to it's it. It's kind of funny because, like, I'm actually, I'm, I'm definitely in that group where, besides uh, Rogue One, and I actually, I did like Solo, but I really do dislike Seven and Eight, the new trilogy that they're doing. It actually made me reflect and go, Am I turning into an original trilogy? I grew up on the prequels and the originals, and now it's like I'm older. And so I'm wondering if what I'm feeling for the new movies is what the original trilogy lovers felt when the prequels came out. And I don't know if that's true or not, but I had to reflect and go, I hope I'm not turning into that. But I have so many reasons I'm not enjoying the new trilogy. But like I said, I, I loved Rogue One. And I'd liked Solo. I didn't love it, but I, I liked it. I just want to point out, we're not hating on anything right here, you know? I mean, we're just saying, eh, you know, that one's not my favorite. I could, I could pass on that one, yeah. And I want to save time for Kickstarter, so I want to move on to Doctor Who. You're also a fan of that. Now, when did you start watching Doctor Who, and who was your favorite Doctor? I love these questions. <laughs> I started watching Doctor Who actually when I was about 15 or 16 years old. And I have a really odd way of getting into it. I was actually at my dentist's office. I was waiting to have an appointment with the dentist. And they had an Entertainment Weekly magazine on the table there. I had like heard of Doctor Who like a little bit. I believe the sixth series, Matt Smith's second season, had started or was about to start. It was him on the cover of this Entertainment Weekly magazine, The Eleventh Doctor. I opened it and I was just looking at it. Something about some of the images and just some of the, uh, the characters and how they looked and I saw like Eleventh Doctor and Amy and Rory together and I was like, I want to watch this. I always say it had heart and it looked like a great fun show and and I and I love sci-fi and I was like maybe this could be you know something new I could get into those images like never left me and I was like I'm going to hunt for Doctor Who so I remember going to my local library and I saw they had first series that Matt Smith the 11th Doctor was in and I thought, okay, I'll start here because this was a new regeneration, new showrunner. He's the current doctor now, so maybe I'll you know enjoy this. I watched the first couple episodes, and I was like, this is pretty good. I'm kind of liking it. It was really different. I had never really watched a British TV show, and so I was learning all these new things and you know British humor and and how kind of zany and weird Doctor Who can be. And I was still kind of getting into it. And then about halfway through the season it became like my favorite show ever by the end of the fifth series i was like i am buying all of these <laughs> like i don't care <laughs> this is like the best thing i've ever seen on tv in my life like that's how i felt when i watched it and to this day like doctor who is is my favorite tv show and one of the biggest inspirations actually in making me want to be a writer because it's written so well and Stephen moffat the showrunner and the the writer for my favorite episodes in the series, I couldn't believe someone could write some of these episodes. Like this was written, like someone actually put this down and then they made this. I want to make people feel what this show makes me feel. And same in any uh, medium, like when I read a comic or a book or something and I'm like, wow, someone wrote this. I want to do that for other people. I want I want to you know make them cry, make them laugh, make them relate to something, make them think about their life. And it touched me just like so powerfully that it like made me want to be a part of this, be a part of storytelling and creating stories that can even help people. Like Doctor Who's like helped me, like just through you know a bad day or you know bad time. Like I just want to watch an episode of Doctor Who and I'll feel better. And it's amazing how something like that can work for you. What is your favorite episode or season? My favorite season of Doctor Who is probably the fifth series with Matt Smith, uh, the 11th Doctor. And and he is my favorite Doctor. Out of that series, it would have to be Pandorica Opens, Big Bang storyline finale of the fifth series because it was the first time i had really seen long form storytelling on the screen and how it connected all the previous episodes and it just blew my mind i was like how can something be so smart i'm not as smart as the show that's what i was thinking like this is <laughs> way too smart and this is blowing my mind and it made me want to rewatch the entire season because my mind was boggled. I, I'd never seen anything like this. And what's so cool about it and so captivating is like the doctor himself 
can do anything, you know, be anywhere in a sense, you know, it's like he's a writer's playground, that show and, and that character. There's certain, you know, I would say, you know, rules about the show and then the doctors and things you don't want to ever do with the character. But in terms of imagination and creativity and, and how far you can go and how much you can do, he is the ultimate hero. What makes him the ultimate hero, too, is he doesn't ask for anything in return. He just travels the universe and helps people and does it because it's the kind thing to do. Uh, what a hero, what a character. I've been a Doctor Who junkie for years, since I was like 18. What appealed to me was the British culture. I liked Britcoms and I hadn't watched Doctor Who at the time, but there was something kind of alien about it because I'm not from England. Exactly. I went back and watched them all. One of my favorites of the original series, the low-budget original series, Yeah, yeah. was John Pertwee. I have two. It's kind of hard. I, it's like Star Wars, you know, like I'm like with you, 10, 10, 10, 10. 1. Yeah. <laughs> I don't have like when I hate. Even Sylvester McCoy has some really, really solid moments. But John Pertwee, season one, with his companion Liz Shaw, who's basically like his equal in terms of intelligence and smarts and just really being a good, solid companion. And I just love the quirkiness of it and being set in the early 70s because it is like so mod man. (laughs) It's just so there's nothing else like it. And then Peter Davidson, because he's that doctor like you speak of that does the right thing and cares about all the companions as they all do. It's hard for me to pick just one. And I'm also excited each time they discover a missing episode that's been recovered. That is the best. And the new series, when it came back in 2005, I managed to acquire an off-air recording of the first season before it was shown in the U.S. (laughs) Wow. And I started with the end, and I was watching the one with Christopher Eccleston and the last episode with the Daleks. And I just remember when I heard that theme song, I got a freaking chill down my spine. Like, oh my God. Like my mind was blown. Because like, I'd watched, you know, the classic one. And I was just like, I had a party that day and I had relatives come upstairs. I'm like, look, I got to see this on my computer. This will blow your mind. And they were just like, oh my God, that's amazing. When's that coming out? And I'm like, I don't know, man, but this is it right here. Another influence of yours that I also really enjoy this writer's work is Ed Brubaker. What is it about Brubaker as a writer that you admire? His run on Captain America with uh, the death of Captain America story, that's when I started getting comics monthly was with that uh, story. And particularly when, when Bucky, Winter Soldier, you know, became Captain America. I was like, there's a new Captain America? Like, like no way. Like, what? Who's he? Like, what is the story? And I started getting them on a monthly basis. I was taken into a character and a, a way of writing someone, particularly in how Brubaker writes inner narration or like inner dialogue with his characters, having the characters themselves narrate, you know, what they're feeling, what they're going through, giving that to the reader, peering into the mind of Bucky Barnes and the Winter Soldier. To me, Brubaker, like, that's where he shined for me. And that's where he caught me. It made me like, I want to know more about this character. And I want to learn about, you know, where he's come from and what Brubaker was able to do with the whole cast, you know, Sharon Carter and Falcon. And he brought all these characters together and he made them more alive to me than I'd ever really seen them and more real and grounded and like it's obvious why they brought the Winter Soldier in you know for Captain America's second film is because he's such a compelling character and he's so relevant and you can use you know that whole era and 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 I and I love military kind of espionage uh vibes in a story i don't i don't like it when it's too hardcore the way brubaker melds it with superhero themes and just characters uh, larger than life characters it's really impressive and it put me on the edge of my seat every time you know i'd read a new issue of captain america i'd be like this is so thrilling it's so uh high octane and extreme and and visceral and i was being so emotionally invested with the character and and how bucky was such a fallen character that i could relate to and i love redemption stories and like bucky's story is about redemption and that's what really kept me on this journey and i and i followed brubaker's you know run till the very end and and also steve epting's artwork without epting i don't i don't think it would have been as great and he's still to this day my favorite comic book artist i love him and he's actually going to be working on action comics soon with 1007 steve epting is and so i'm like steve epting superman oh you know <laughs> amazing ed brubaker's definitely one of the greats one of the, the modern classics now i love that run of captain america i have it and he did something 
thing that I didn't think anybody could ever do is bring Bucky back because that was like Uncle Ben's dead, Gwendy yeah. Stacy's dead. You just don't touch. And that was always Cap's angst was, oh, I lost Bucky. And that went on. Besides being a man out of time, there was always that element, especially back in Silver Age with uh, Lee and yeah. Kirby. But the fact that he could do that, bring him back. Yeah, I buy this. It's been a great addition to the mythology, the Marvel mythology to bring him back and not just another imaginary story. So that's incredible. <laughs> and plus, you know, Brubaker's work on the Criminal series, the fade out. Oh, killer be killed. Oh, geez. Yeah. I mean, oh, I read all that stuff. Uh, yeah. It's great. <laughs> now on to your stuff, Lifeline, the Kickstarter. Now it started December 1st. It's going to run through or right about January 1st of next year, but I wouldn't wait till the last day. 96 page full color graphic novel. And you have seven indie artists from around the world contributing each is illustrating a chapter in their own unique style with their own medium because each one is from a different person's perspective and from a different decade in the central character's life. Lewis Wakefield is the central character. We see life through the eyes of his wife, his best friend, his daughter, and a stranger. And the whole question is, Lewis is asking himself is, was my life worth living? You talked about Brubaker writing inner dialogue and everything, and I've read some of your work seasons, and you're definitely a master at that. I mean, it's amazing what you're doing. It's, it's incredible. I'm really impressed. Uh, and people say, this guy's only 21. But think about some of the big names at Marvel when they started working, like Frank Miller. How old were they? And look <laughs> what they were doing. So why not? I mean, the guy's got the talent. He's, you know, you've got it, man. So tell me why you selected each creator, the artists on the book, and a bit about each, something that we don't know about them, to help us get a better understanding of the team that you're working with. Going into Lifeline, you know, I wanted each chapter to be different, to feel different. And because it was being told from a different character's perspective, set in a different decade, you know, it needed that um, visual continuity with the character. And choosing each artist was very time consuming. And I had a list of people and I was, I'm, I'm an artist hunter. Like I, I hunt for these people and I try to find the, the best one and the right one. And even when I was writing the script, um, I had a couple in mind. And thankfully, uh, most of all the ones I had in mind were able to put it in their schedule. And I was so honored and privileged and, and flattered that they would be like, yeah, this I would love to be a part of this. And chapter one artist is uh, Emily Schnall, and she lives in, in Rhode Island, Providence, Rhode Island. Uh, she had done a Kickstarter, worked on a book with someone, and that's how actually I found her was because I go on Kickstarter all the time just to see what creators are doing and if there are any comics I want to back and, and give because there's so much great talent on there and put so much out that I don't think fans potential fans could you know really enjoy and you know when I contacted her and asked her it was such a, a pleasure you know she was like yeah I'd love to be a part of this and I thought all right like check mark Emily Schnall on the board <laughs> and uh, she's a really nice person and she's been great to work with something really cool about the video for listeners for the Kickstarter video is you get to see every artist their face and talk about which chapter they're doing and and you get to put a face of the creator with their art and that was something really important to me about this project was having everyone realize what a communal project this is like how community centered i think the indie comic scene is and i wanted to bring that to a story and that was something really important to me to do that and then like chapter two artist Caden quinn actually lives here in jefferson city missouri and he's one of my best friends and he's the artist for chapter two and i got to become more friends with him because he really likes seasons and i remember him coming to one of my signings here locally he was like dude i love this book so much and he's been wanting to make his own comics and so he's been asking me you know like a lot of advice and trying to get his own book out there and he's only 20 you know and i was like i'd love it if you were part of this book lewis is a teenager in that chapter and caden's style was kind of that ramita-esque not cartoon but more bare and laid back uh with the anatomy so to speak and so it had more of a, a classic feel to it and so i was like i think you would fit this chapter and you know i was totally on board for it and that's something i'm really excited about with this book is like when we get it funded, his first work will be like on, you know, this story. And I'm like, all right, Caden, like I love helping other people out. I love trying to get their work out there. And that's something that I want to do with all these artists. Chapter three, Limbo, the artist for that is Lyndon White. And he lives all the way in the UK. I actually backed one of his books on Kickstarter, The Mind of James Zvengal. It was this very psychological story that dealt with this guy's 
uh, addiction to, to drugs. And Lyndon White has this very digital paint style that was so ethereal to me and really is very flowy in his art and very just like mesmerizing. And so I remember when I was writing chapter three, this is a good example for the book. And I thought Lyndon has to draw this chapter like he has to. And he was one of the first people I contacted because I thought if I can't get him now, maybe I'll be able to get him you know, later down the line or I can at least tell him about this because I knew I wanted his art style for this chapter. With, uh, with my love for Doctor Who, and, and I have you know a love for British culture too, I was like, it'd be awesome to work with someone who works in the UK. Like I was like, that'd just be cool. Like I would love that. And I'm really glad I'm, I'm able to with the technology of today. And chapter four artist, Scott Austin, he lives all the way in, in Sweden. And I had actually backed his Indiegogo he had about a year ago for this cyberpunk book called Cybernetic Punk. And it was this graphic novel that he wrote, drew, he did all the art, all the lettering, he did everything. I backed it because it, it just looked amazing. His art was so good. And he was just a fellow creator trying to get his work out there. And he'd been working on the story, he said, for like 20 years. And I was like, oh my goodness, like, dude, I'm glad you're finally putting it out there. I couldn't do that. I couldn't wait that long to put something out. But I understand how life gets in the way. And uh, I finally got the book a few months ago, and it is to this day the best indie book that I've read by a self-published creator. For him to do all the work that he did on this one book, and it was about 80 to 90 pages of content, it blew my mind. And it was such a great like murder mystery, had a you know that cyberpunk feel, and, and it was set in the future and in Dome City, this like futuristic sci-fi kind of place where AI is running rampant and there are robots and droids and the amount of creativity that went into that book blew me away for one person to do that. I'd recommend anyone like looking that up. It's on Amazon. I think you can buy it. The chapter five artist who's Rin Nolan, this guy I've been following for a while on YouTube because he had a lot of videos because he's a traditional watercolor artist and he lives in San Francisco and I'm a huge admirer of watercolor art, especially in comics. One of my favorite artists is Marco Rudy. He's done some stuff for Marvel and DC and stuff. He worked on Bucky Barnes Winter Soldier series with Alice Cott for like 11 issues or something. And he does a lot of like watercolor. Marco Rudy does. And I always admired that style. I loved breaking the mold of how traditional comics can be set up and paneling that can occur with that. And Ren Nolan, he did that himself for Lifeline. You watch some of his videos and he actually has a few videos up that of him doing some of the work for the book, how it's all pen to paper and paintbrush to paper and individually painting every single crevice and some of the, the pages that takes place in a convenience store. And like that sounds kind of boring, like, oh, a convenience store. But like Renoan painted every single like can of soup that you see or, you know, bag of chips or cigarettes, individually painted everything. And you, you look at that and you go, this is a work of art. This guy is a master artist and he like never works with other people. And I thought, oh, this is a long shot. Like he just only does his own thing. And so when I contacted him, he's like, yeah, I can do it. And I'm like, no way. That's amazing. And to this day, every time I see one of his pages, you know, and I've like drooled over these, I'm like, every time he sent me a page, I'd be like, oh man, I'm so happy. <laughs> we have chapter six artist, Erwin J. Rosa, who lives in the Philippines. He was working on this really amazing fantasy graphic novel series, Green Dawn. He has this black and white digital art that is very ink wash and it feels like etched, like it, it almost feels like a sculptor, like sculpting malleable characters and faces and just what he can do with expressions and making it feel like it's like carved in stone the way his art works. I, um, I thought this adds perfect finality to the story. It's a really um, important chapter in the book because it's the last chapter, but also it's where Lewis is asking him those important questions and it's visually black and white and having it be totally laid bare, laid out for the reader and for himself. It's a way of stripping everything away, all the, all the color and all the distraction and going, this is what the heart of the matter here. And finally, Patrick Biermeyer, who lives in Oregon, he's doing the, the present day pages, which present day pages are preludes to each chapter. And so uh, you'll read a chapter and there'll be some present day pages. And then you'll read the next chapter and there'll be some present day pages. And they're kind of these 
interlocking the glue to the story where you get to see Lewis at his very oldest and him kind of on his deathbed and with his loved ones and everything. And you see how where he's ended up and then you go all the way back with each chapter and you see how he's grown up. You get that complete story of reflection in there and patrick he uh, he's a cover artist as well he's been great to work with he has the most pages to do so i really appreciate just all the work he's been doing he's the man to keep everything glued together and make it feel coherent because sometimes when you're jumping from artist to artist and chapter to chapter you can be like is this the same book am i reading the same book but with the present day pages and what patrick's able to do is um keeping you on a consistent basis and make you realize this is the same character, you know, same story. And it's a way to bridge the gap and keep everything in motion and flow really well. And I've been following along. So when you go to the Kickstarter webpage, and I urge you to do that, there's a sample of each artist's work and a 14-page preview, which I've read. And I'll tell you now, the way the art's been described is spot on you have to see it though the link will be in the show notes you can even go into kickstart and just search it but i'll put it in there look at it read the preview it is a very emotional preview it really will hit home it'll move you not only that but if you also read the previous work that you did seasons you'll see that same deep emotional part about the story, about the individual, about the inner dialogue. So I really urge listeners to check that out. And uh, Nandor, I mentioned Seasons, and you've done the first chapter, Spring, as a Kickstarter, and that's out. I read a couple of books of that, and that's what I was talking about. And it's funny, one of the first things the character's lamenting or grousing about laying in bed is uh, Daylight Savings Time, which I hate. It is so stupid. I, I <laughs> but then it gets into issues about uh, someone he's longing for and being afraid to say something. And that's just the start of the story. But that is incredible. The inner dialogue, the back and forth, and should I, shouldn't I, and here's how I feel. It's really, really good stuff. Really good. And I think some of us have been there and felt that way. So that's available online yeah you can read the entire spring volume on the website and then you can actually purchase the collected volume one spring on amazon great and you're working or you will be working on the next it's going to be broken into four seasons right yes one year in this person's life and it'll be summer coming up next and that's kind of been held off on for now because you're working on lifeline is that right yeah i actually meant to get the kickstarter going for seasons volume two summer like this year but then lifeline uh i got really excited about it and then when i finished writing it and then when you have all these artists doing the art it gets done a lot faster than having one person do the art my artist anthony gonzalez clark for seasons so it kind of sprung up on me and i was like oh i can actually get this out there quicker than i thought i could with volume two summer i'll be launching a kickstarter for that early next year it's taking a little hiatus on the website right now but i have the first 10 pages of summer up online for people to read and then i'll be posting more pages probably after the kickstarter for lifeline ends and again your good taste in artist anthony gonzalez clark is providing the art for that which is outstanding and i read his profile and he works really hard he's taken a lot of jobs you know to get the bills paid i mean you know uber and everything all kinds of work and now he's just grateful and thrilled to be a paid artist and the work is gorgeous he's been my brother in all this and getting this off the ground and he's done phenomenal work with seasons and it wouldn't be the book it is you know without him especially the first story like what he's been able to bring to the table and i'm so surprised that he hasn't been picked up by a major publisher because he's just as good if not better than a lot of artists out there in the, in the comics medium and i just love what he's able to do with the story and it's been a pleasure working with him folks check out the kickstarter lifeline it ends january 1st don't wait till then look at the rewards for backers and you'll see the print and the digital copies you'll see there'll be prints that can go along with it original art all kinds of stuff i won't belabor those have a look there's a level <laughs> that's comfortable for everyone i hope like you i enjoy going through kickstarter and discovering new artists new writers i haven't heard of and i'm like where have they been and they <laughs> want to get the same amount of recognition and exposure as 
professionals and others have been working in art for a while and it's hard. So you really owe it yourself to look at some of that stuff and definitely check this one out. Do you have some time for the fun questions? Ask all my guests. Oh yeah, I definitely do. All right. So what do you like to do for rest and relaxation? Everyone's gone to bed or, you know, like it's all quiet in the house. It's just me, a book and possibly a cup of coffee. And I can just sit, you know, either at my desk or on the couch and I can just read into the night. And that's where I get the most satisfaction and time to escape and be in a world of just literature and and writing. And, And I absorb so much when I read that it's not only just, you know, entertaining, but educational in some senses because I try to pay attention to what I'm reading and really learn from it. I love you know, it being quiet in the house and just sitting down and taking a story in and absorbing it. What was your favorite birthday ever? <laughs> and why? The year I actually, talking about Doctor Who, I got gifted from my parents the first two or three series that Matt Smith was in. And I actually made it a, a birthday tradition from that year on that I would watch an episode of Doctor Who like every year that it was my birthday and (laughs) just because like it doesn't even matter if i've seen the episode or what but the night's about to end you know and i'm like all right guys it's time for doctor who and i'll just put on an episode and just getting that like it was the first time i had owned blu-ray edition of collection of doctor who series and i was like i have finally have this i love owning things i really enjoy and i think i even was you know gifted a sonic screwdriver you know and i was like oh yeah this is awesome i love that experience and that i was able to like share that i'm able to share a lot of things with my family and they put up with me really well i like to get them all together and be like watch this with me see how great the show is i don't care if you don't appreciate it or you don't like it like I do. And it's my birthday. And, you know, it's my day and I want to watch some Doctor Who. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I've had pushback on that. Although my (laughs) wife does like the newer Doctor Who since 2005. The older ones, she just, you know, can't get. But that's all right. You know, I mean, I don't like everything she likes. So that's cool. But she does appreciate some of the newer ones. And really, particularly as well as I loved uh, the Chris Eccleson and uh, David Tennant, Matt Smith. I mean, they were all a lot of fun. And I'm not knocking the other ones. I'm just thinking, you know, those are the ones that that struck us the most, probably because they were the first ones, that we saw the new ones. Now, that's a happy moment, the birthdays. not Maybe not so happy. What was the oddest job you ever had? Helping my next-door neighbor move. <laughs> and the reason I say that is because she was an elderly lady, and she had to move from a house into an apartment. And I think my mom or someone volunteered us, my brother and I. We were only maybe 14 or 13 years old or something and we had to help move this all this this ladies you know all her stuff all her boxes it was over the course of like a week and it was just like my brother and I and some of her family but they were all older so they really didn't have the physicality and the energy to do all that and it was so odd because at the time you know I'm like oh I'm helping this person out and you know I'm getting paid for it and it was fun to do like with my brother But when I look back and I think about it, I'm like, that was hard. Like, that was really hard to put on a a 13, 14-year-old to, like, move all the stuff. And it was funny because this lady's boyfriend or uh, husband or something, my brother and I would laugh at this guy because he was older and he would try to always move all the stuff. And I remember one of the funniest memories is I'm trying to lift up this like really heavy box about to lift it up and he's like oh god and like my brother and I just like, start laughing so hard because we're like we got it we got it like you don't have to worry about it you get to learn a lot about people and we got to learn a lot about this next door neighbor family that we you know it's just like okay like kind of want to get out of here <laughs> you've heard the show you know how it works so the desert island book one book you can take with you for fun. Don't worry about it being a means to get off the island because that would be most people's logical choice. But what would you like to read for pleasure? And it could be graphic novel. It can be just a regular book. It just can't be digital. So what would be <laughs> your Desert Island book? No, no nooks on this island. <laughs> <laughs> no. Yeah. 
Um, I think because I would be able to relate to the characters so much and wouldn't feel so alone, I'd probably bring, and I'm a big Star Wars novel reader. I haven't read all the Star Wars novels, but I, I read a lot of them. I've read like almost 50 uh, Star Wars novels. Wow. And I think I would bring Star Wars Kenobi by John Jackson Miller. It tells the story of Obi-Wan like right after Revenge of the Sith and He's on Tatooine. He's a hermit. You know, you get to learn like how he stripped himself from, you know, trying to be a Jedi and tried to live the exile life. And I think I could get a lot out of that book. I'd be like, I feel you, Kenobi. Like, I really, I really understand what you're going through right now on Tatooine all alone and in your little hut. And I'm on this desert island with no one to talk to. <laughs> I have cheated. I normally don't do this. You're talking about the Star Wars novels. And I looked up one that I still have. And I bought it when it came out. And it was uh, Splinter of the Mind's Eye. I couldn't remember who wrote it. It was Alan Dean Foster. And it was a sequel to the first film. It might be one of the first Star Wars books to come out post-film that wasn't an adaptation. So that one I've read. And the one that I can't remember the name of it darn me it was uh, a book that is shadow something between the first star wars movie and the second one i'll figure it out later i'll, I'll mention yeah. it in the post credits but uh i have that one too oh cool it might be shadows of the empire that does sound right i think it might be that one that had like dash rindar in it folks i'm cheating i'm gonna actually i'm just curious if i recognize the cover i'm gonna just uh look this one up Da, 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 da. Yeah, that's it. Yep. Yeah. Um, no, that's that's awesome. I know the story of that one. I haven't read that one, but I, I know the story. I actually collect Star Wars novels. I, I really love trying to hunt them all down because uh, what's really cool about where I live, the library, they usually have this annual massive book sale buy a paperback for 25 cents or something oh wow i go there like every year it's always in march it's always around my birthday too which i'm like oh my birthday present i probably have over 70 or 80 novels i just try to collect them all i started reading them when i was about 13 that was kind of what got me into reading that long of a story like my attention span like i was actually able to comprehended and since i had seen all the movies i think it was a lot easier for me to visualize what i was seeing when i was reading you talk about a star destroyer you talk about a certain planet or or you know a lightsaber or something i know what that looks like so it's a lot easier for me to um take it in and really visualize it in my head and that's something that's really hard with a lot of sci-fi novels this is all too technical you know like i don't really understand <laughs> what's what's going on the really hardcore ones but and something that's really interesting about splinter of the mind's eye i have that one and i remember reading the foreword or, or something george lucas wrote a little forward in the book and at least in my copy and what's really fascinating is in that foreword he talks about visualizing the star wars saga as nine movies like nine films and that was right after the first one came out and i remember looking at that you know because i got the book a couple years ago and i thought this was when the force awakens was just about to come out and i was like whoa this guy is a complete visionary like he had nine films on his mind (laughs) you know that's incredible that's a pioneer and, and a genius I thought I read an article later that he said, no, I never planned to do nine films. I'm like, yes, you did. Yes, you did. Because I read it. You did. <laughs> yeah. Sometimes George, you know, I think he forgets some things. Yeah. <laughs> now, if there were an action figure made of you, what would be your accessory? I think it would be a sword. I think I would really love having a sword on my belt, a little mini sword. And maybe maybe it could be a lightsaber. I would totally dig that. I love the Star Wars action figures where you had the lightsaber hilt of the action figure and you just like clip it into the belt of the Star Wars action figure. And I always loved that. Even if the saber wasn't ignited, I'd be like, look at this guy. He has his saber ready to go. <laughs> See, I was thinking you were going to say a lightsaber that also doubles as a sonic screwdriver. Oh, okay. Like the Swiss Army knife of lightsaber. 
<laughs> oh, I would, I would love that. Yes, that would be the ideal one. Now, sir, your beverage of choice. I know you like coffee when you're relaxing and reading your books. When it's quiet time, is that is that your beverage of choice, or is there another? I'd probably say a root beer. Actually, I actually am a big fan of root beer, and if we want to throw in a root beer float in there, that would be even more extravagant. I think. A nice bottle of AW or mug root beer. I would just be ecstatic. That's my beverage, man. I love me some beer, but I love me some root beer. <laughs> I am laughing because what I had before this interview. Now I always have some water or something. I actually did have a diet A and W root beer. <laughs> what? I swear yeah. to God. <laughs> oh, that's that's awesome. Yeah, it was meant to be. <laughs> Well, I don't know how many interviews you've done, but this is the one question I like to ask my guests uh, sometimes, not all the time, but sometimes. What is the one question that hasn't come up in a conversation even? You wish somebody would ask you about, but no one has, and you want to say something about it. What would that question be? I know that's a tough one. I have been thinking about this one. Mine is, who do you think you are? I said, well, <laughs> since you asked me. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> If you don't have an answer, that's okay, because that is a tough one. It's a little easier when you've been asked the same questions over and over <laughs> and over again. Like if you're Walt Simonson, tell me about Thor. Like like it's never come up. <laughs> you know, yeah. How'd you come up? <laughs> right, how'd right. you get the job? I'm sure he's heard it zillions of times and loves telling the story, but there's other things they want to talk about too. <laughs> right. But if that one's too tough, I do have an alternate if you'd like to answer that one. Want to pass and go for an alternate question? Let's just pass. This is one of my newer ones. What technology that we no longer use do you miss the most? Something that kind of is outdated now? Like some people say, for example, say turntables. I like vinyl. They're back in vogue now, though. Right. right. Typewriters, I've had that answer. The touch wheel iPod. But, you know, is there some technology like that was pretty cool? We just don't use it anymore. I would have to say a portable CD player. And oh, okay. the reason why I say that is I still buy CDs. I love CDs. Me and too. <laughs> yeah, and I, and yeah, it's very convenient having it on your phone. But growing up when I was going to school or, you know, riding on the bus, you know, I'd bring my portable CD player and I'd have a folder of all the CDs and I would flip through them and find a CD. And I just love owning, really owning like a physical thing that I can hold and touch. And growing up, I loved having my own like my brother had a portable cd player and my dad had one or whatever so it's like i loved having my own and then having my cds and having a binder you know of them and hearing the cd uh spinning and switching cds and just that whole hands-on process and not worrying about you know is my internet connection good or <laughs> can i stream this i didn't have to worry about that like growing up i just had my cds with me and it was just a nice thing I would just bring with me, you know, to some places. And I think what we have is definitely more convenient and probably better now, full access to everything. But it's a pastime that it was kind of short-lived, and I kind of miss that when I think about it. Yeah, I still buy CDs. I have a lot of digital music, but there are still certain artists like, well, I got to have the CD. You know, I've always bought the CD. I've got to have it with the rest of the CDs. I know. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. What's really cool. And see, this would never happen if you bought it digitally. Uh, I'm a massive Billy Joel fan. I, I love Billy Joel and I have every single CD of his. And a lot of my musical tastes have been passed down from my dad because he loved a lot of, you know, Beatles and Billy Joel and a lot of the 70s, 60s and 80s artists. And I was hunting for some Billy Joel CDs. Every time I go to a CD store, I, I look. Now I have them all, which is good. But at the time, I was still hunting for them. And I uh, went to this used CD store and I opened up a used CD of Billy Joel's album, The Bridge. And I opened it up and there were two physical tickets to one of his concerts, oh. 83, I believe. Holy cow. And that was for a concert in Tennessee or Virginia or something. Two tickets in the you know CD case. And I opened it up and the CD was like five, six dollars. I thought, I'm going to have these two tickets forever. And, and then at the same time, I thought, who was the idiot that left these two <laughs> Billy Joel tickets in this 
case that would drive me crazy if i had done that you know so and now i have them with me you know and i, I look at them sometimes and i'm like all right i you know it was before my time i was in billy joel in concert and i don't know if i'd want to see him now because he's a lot older than, than he used to be but still a wonderful musician and it's something that i really cherish and i'm like that would have never happened if i didn't get a cd and there they are and i have them now forever Oh, that's amazing. I can see why somebody would do that, put that little memento in with the case, and they're probably now saying, what do I ever do with those tickets? But <laughs> yeah. yeah, hey, you know, uh, underrated and not much heard Billy Joel album anymore that I really enjoyed was Stormfront. Yeah. I think a very good album. I've listened to all of them, but I'm like, I really like that one. I don't know why, but it was just pretty cool. Yeah. Well, it's been a pleasure. It's been a lot of fun. I just want to remind folks, Lifeline Kickstarter ends on one one. The new year, 2019, be a part of it. Check it out. I urge you. And I think you'll like what you say. Nandra, thanks so much for being on Creator Talks. Oh, thank you so much, Chris. It's been a blast. All right, folks. Thank you for joining me for this week's episode. Now, next week on Tuesday is Christmas Day. Those of you celebrating, I want to wish you all a Merry Christmas and a Happy Holidays to all. I wanted to do something special for the podcast for the last episode of the year, 2018. Think of it as my gift to you for being loyal listeners throughout the year. My guests next week. Joining me will be Richard and Wendy Peeney, the creators of ElfQuest. Beginning in 1978 and running for 40 years, Richard and Wendy just concluded the run of ElfQuest with the final quest and have celebrated its 40th anniversary and have been conducting interviews, going to cons, meeting with fans, and it looks like 2019 is going to be a busy year for them too. So we're going to talk about all of that and more, much, much more, on next week's episode coming out on Thursday, December 27th. Just a reminder, this show is available on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, Dot and Echo devices, as well as on YouTube. You can subscribe. It's free. And if you have a chance, please leave a star rating and or review on iTunes. It is greatly appreciated and really helps the show. You can follow me on my Facebook page and on Twitter at Creator Talks Pod. That's at Creator Talks Pod. And you can follow me on Instagram at Creator Talks Pod, where on Saturday I post my Silver Age comics and Sunday some Bronze Age comics from my collection. The best way to reach me is by email. You can reach me through contact at creatortalks.com. That's contact at creatortalks.com. I hope you have a chance to enjoy the holidays with family and friends. Unplug from devices for a bit. Put those away. I'll be doing the same on Christmas Day, but I'll be back next Thursday with a new episode, as I have for the past two years. Thank you, listeners, old and new. For Creator Talks, this has been Christopher Calloway. Until next time. <laughs>